Let's bow together in prayer now as we come into our study of God's word, as we continue this time of worship and we pick right up where the worship team left off with their songs. Lord, we bow before you, and even as Eden prayed this morning, you are God, we're not, and we, we're glad to confess that today, and we confess we fall far short, but you are God. And now in the moments of he- ahead, would you please speak through your word? People today wish God would speak to them, but here you are, you're going to speak to us through the power of your spirit, through your book. Help us to grasp your truth and drive it deeply into our lives. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get underway this morning, I want you to think of your favorite president. You don't have a favorite, one of your favorites. Might be the guy that's in office or the last guy that was in office or somebody before him. For me, it probably would be Abraham Lincoln, but I just want you to think about who your favorite president is for a second, kind of lock it in there, and then imagine that today he was president of the United States, and he made a personal phone call this coming week to you. He's on some special task, and he's calling for your assistance. Well, that would never, pretend with me for a minute. Come on now, play along. He calls you, and you are incredibly honored that he would do such a thing, and you're just, you know, <laughs> you got to catch your breath. And of course, you'll do anything you can to help this esteemed person that you hold in very high regard for his leadership ability. You commit to do what you can. Tells you what he needs you to do, and you know, I can't do that. I just, there's no way. And, you know, I got a job, I got to work. I'll take care of you in this process. I'll make sure you have what you need. But I need your help on this. Please help. And you agree. Let me draw a similar parallel. The Lord Jesus, before he ascends back to heaven, he says, all authority has been given unto me. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I therefore commission you to go and make disciples for me. And I know you're going to feel absolutely overwhelmed with this task and you'll feel you can't possibly do it and you've got other stuff in life that you must do. I'll take care of that. For some of us, I don't know which of those two conversations, the president or the Lord's conversation with us seems more hard to imagine. The second one has happened. He has commissioned us, and this is the vision of Calvary, that we, we are out there producing as best we can, helping people follow and be followers of the Lord Jesus. And that they then in turn would help other people to become followers of the Lord Jesus. And so here we gather on a Sunday morning in all of our imperfection to worship an absolutely perfect God, and we wonder how he could possibly use us, but he does. We're currently doing this series, Who is This God That We Serve? And this is an incredibly important series for us, especially after recent days here in our country, our world, all that is going on, coming out of the pandemic, if we are coming out of it, but to remember who God is. Because you see, in the difficulties of life, we start drawing our conclusions of who God is. And they don't always match up with the scriptures. God, you answer other people's prayers, but you don't answer mine. That is not what the scriptures say. He may say no, he may say wait, or he may say I have a better idea, or he may say yes, but he answers. 
This series is all about looking into his characteristics and his names and remembering who he really is, not what our experiences made him out to be, but who he really is. Today we're looking at the name Elyon, the Hebrew name Elyon, which means highest. It is a word that refers to him being the exalted one, high above all others. And some people would say, okay, well, we know that. I mean, obviously he is. He's God. Did you ever think of the impact of this to your life, though? This is an amazing study. This word is used over 200 times in Scripture. Several times it is used of him as his name. He is Elion, Most High, the Lord Most High. Now, this word is also used of other things. Uh, for, for example, Sometimes the word exalted or above all else is used of a nation. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 19, where he has declared that he will now set you Israel and he will praise, uh, set you in praise and fame and honor high above Elion. That's the word. He will set this nation of Israel high above other nations. He has made them, and you will be his people, holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. So he takes Israel, and he puts Israel in a special position above others, Elyon. Sometimes this word is used of other people or things. For example, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, where the Lord says to his prophet Isaiah, I want you to go out and I want you to take your son with you to meet King Ahaz. And I want you to meet King Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct at the upper pool, Elyon Pool. Of all the pools in that rare, go to the highest one, the one that's above the others. That's what this word means, above all others. And then there are a number of times in the Bible where Elyon is referencing our God. He is the God above all gods. He is the Lord most high. For example, Psalm 18, verse 13. The Lord thunders from the heavens, the voice of the Elyon, the most high God. The most high God resounds. Now, constantly throughout Scripture, this name is given. He is the Lord most high. I want to take you to the first example in the Bible of the use Elyon referencing God. Oftentimes the first time something like this is mentioned, it's a definitive moment, a moment where you can really grip the significance of a word like this. I'm referring to Genesis chapter 14. So let's go there. First use, if you have a Bible, I trust you do, open it to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. This is the first time Elyon is used. It's actually coupled with El Elyon, El being God. God Most High is the name that is given to our God in this passage. First time. It's significant. Let me give you a little background to prepare you for this. Genesis 14 is a time of war. 
It is a story of war. War is difficult. Four kings decide to join forces, and they're going up against five cities in the Dead Sea area, one of which is what we now call Jerusalem. These four kings decide they're going to go and conquer these cities and take everything that they want, the gold, the silver, the people, the animals, everything. They attack. They are successful. One of the cities that they conquer is the city of Sodom, where Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives. And Abraham hears the nose, Lot, uh, Sodom has fallen, Lot has been taken captive. And Abraham says, oh no, not in my day. And so the next war is on. Abraham arms his 318 servants, they're shepherds. He arms them for battle. He attacks the four armies. Did you get that? 318 shepherds going up against four massive armies. And somehow, by the power of El Elyon, Abraham is victorious. He and his 318 shepherds beat the tails of the four armies. This is the story of Genesis 14. So here comes Abraham riding back into the camp, the area, the town where he's living at that time, and he's leading this long, this long parade of 318 servants and Lot and his family and all the stuff, the gold and the silver that they've conquered from these four armies that they took from the four cities. And he's bringing it all home and everybody's like, hey, Abraham, this is great. Oh, Abraham is the hero of the moment. Heroism's a wonderful thing. Well, along with the parade, everybody's come to town to see Abraham come back. Two additional kings come by to respectfully honor Abraham for what he has done. The first king is the king of Salem. Some of you who know your Bibles will recognize this name. His name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes by to say, hey, Abraham, great job. But what he does in this is he prays a prayer of blessing on Abraham for what he has done. Exodus 14, 18 and 19. Then Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, he brought out bread and wine. So we're going to have a little party. Some of you who know your Bibles know that there's some New Testament references to Melchizedek, and we think he's some kind of a type or a pre-current appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that he's bringing bread and wine? It almost sounds like the Last Supper. Not going there right now, but kind of interesting. The next statement says he was priest of God Most High. There it is, El Elyon. He is a priest. He is a king but not only a king, but he's also a priest of our God, the Lord God, El Elyon. And he blessed Abraham, and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. So he again uses the term El Elyon. Blessed be you, Abraham, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, Abraham, 
You, 318 shepherds, go up against four armies. Don't forget, I bless you in the name of El Elyon, but who really brought your victory? Was it your slyness going out there? You attacked them by night and you surprised them and you conquered them. Was it you that did it, Abraham? No, El Elyon did this. The Lord Most High. Interestingly, if you read on here in the chapter, what you'll find is Abraham says, you're absolutely right. He didn't try to take any of the credit. In a moment when he's very popular, he's successful, he's receiving glory, when pride could build, he just says, you're right, it's El Elyon, the highest God. He did it. And then he turns around, and all that gold and silver and stuff that he brought back in those, he gives a tithe of that, one-tenth of that, to King Melchizedek as priest to offer to God. He tithed what he got out of the war. El Elyon, great victory. Now you recall I said there were two kings that came out to the parade. The other one was actually the king of Sodom whose city was conquered by the kings that attacked. And so I guess he's watching this whole thing with Melchizedek. He said, look at that. Abram gave Melchizedek a, ten a tenth. Well, some of this stuff here and the spoils, this was my stuff. So maybe if I speak up, I can get some too. So he asked Abraham for, you know, a little kickback here. And Abraham gave him everything back. Which was Abraham's way of saying, I don't need to take anything from your hand. Your defeat, my victory, I don't need that. El Elyon will take care of me. And he gave him all his stuff back. Clearly, this is a story about the Most High God bringing a tremendous victory to Abram, 318 shepherds over four major armies. The Lord Most High gave victory. Today, are you outnumbered by some foreign armies in your face? those that have done you wrong. There is no higher power than El Elyon. Just be sure that when he brings you through this moment, you give him the glory. You don't try to take it, oh, you were sly, you were clever, you were able. It's El Elyon, the Lord Most High. There is only one most high God. There are too many people that think they themselves are God or some circumstance in their life is God. And, and what we often need to do is exactly what we've been trying to do in this service today in song and now in the word, to recognize, to acknowledge that he is the Lord most high. It is not us or our circumstances. Whatever brick wall you are facing right now, and you have no idea how to get through, just understand there is an El Elyon above all of that. He is the Lord Most High. And there is none like him. In contrast to this stands our arch enemy who himself wanted to be God. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and following, before the creation of mankind, in this world, Satan attempted a takeover of God in heaven. 
And Isaiah tells us about that. Here's what Satan said. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the most heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like El Elyon. How many times has this been repeated in history by tyrants, people that rule nations, pastors that rule churches, people that rule their homes? Five times, I will ascend, I will raise, I will sit on the throne. There is one who is the highest, El Elyon. Be like Abraham and serve him and recognize him and credit him with all your victories. There is one God. He is above us. That's the first reference to El Elyon in scripture. It's a significant one. It really shapes what we know about this name for God, the Lord Most High. Now what I want to do for the next few minutes, and actually for the conclusion of the service, is take you to another Old Testament book where this term El Elyon is used a number of times, and it builds in a story. Actually, I'm going to give you three stories from this book. I want to take you to the book of Daniel. Can you find that in your Bible if you have a Bible with you? It's after the major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Next comes Daniel. Of all the times El Elyon is used in this book, I want to reference the time it is used and communicated to a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who is a tyrant, and he is going to learn that there is an El Elyon. Daniel chapter 2 is where this story of Nebuchadnezzar begins. In, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king, earthwide power. I mean, he is a powerful man in his day. He has a dream one night, and the dream really upsets him. In his dream, he sees this colossal statue or image, and he has no idea what it means, but even as a most powerful man, it scares him to death. And so he calls in from his kingdom all of his dream interpreters and his musician, his magicians and all the rest of his high-ranking priests. And he says, you've got to tell me what my dream means because it scares me to death. Now he didn't trust them. And when you read Daniel chapter 2, it's really clear he didn't trust them. He knew they come up with some cockamamie, baloney-filled interpretation of the dream. So he said, I want to preclude all that. You're not only going to tell me the interpretation of the dream. You're going to tell me what the dream was. And they're all like, whoa, 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 nobody can do that. I love it when God says, nobody can do that. And God steps in. El Elyon will step into this scenario. And Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, so yes, you will tell me what the dream is. And you'll tell me what it means. And if you don't, you will die. He condemns them all to death. 
very righteous young man steps up. His name is Daniel. And he said, El Elyon can tell you. And so that night, Daniel and his three buddies, some of you know their names because you know the book of Daniel a little bit. They're going to spend some time in a fiery furnace soon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They spend some time together in prayer, and God reveals the nature of this dream and what it means. And Daniel takes that to King Nebuchadnezzar. And lo and behold, this dream is a terrifying one because it actually lays out the next 2,000 years of secular rulers, pagan Gentile rulers in the world. And it starts with a statue, a head of gold, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. And he's thinking, this is great, I'm the head of gold. And he goes down from there through the various kingdoms that will occur over the next several hundred years. And Daniel spells all this out. It is an amazing, amazing story. And Daniel actually states to the king, Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel replies, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no divider can possibly explain to you the king the mystery of that he's asked about but there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries el elyon nebuchadnezzar has no idea what this el elyon is about to do but el elyon is going to teach nebuchadnezzar that he he is the one that raises kings up like king nebuchadnezzar and he raises kingdoms up, and then he takes them down. This is the theme of the book of Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar has now been introduced to El Elyon. Next chapter. Chapter 3 is the second story, second part of the story. Fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar is caught up. He's the golden head. This is great, huge statue. What are you going to do? He's going to build an image of the statue, and he wants everybody to fall down and worship it. He's the head of gold. This is pretty cool. This guy is just too big for himself. Daniel chapter 3, the image is built, and it is commanded that everyone in his empire must bow down and worship this statue. But there are three young men who will not bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king learns everybody bows down except three, and he is really irritated over these three. So he calls them in, and he gives them a second chance. When the music plays, you bow, you worship my statue. And they say, no, he is livid. Daniel chapter 3. They reply to the king who has commanded them to worship. Verses 16 and following. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into this flaming furnace that you want to heat up, God, the God we serve, El Elyon, is quite capable of saving us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. King, but even if he chooses not to rescue us, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And the king is infuriated even more. He orders this 
cremation furnace of his to be heated seven times hotter. Talk about overkill. Seven times hotter than it's ever been. The soldiers that are commanded to throw Shadrach and Meshach Benigo in are actually, some of them are actually killed throwing them into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in thinking he's gotten justice, and he can't believe what he sees as he sees these three men standing in the midst of the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar himself testifies on this issue that he sees a fourth one in with them, and he looks like the son of the gods. Probably another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And then he calls them out. Get out of that furnace, come out to talk to me. And in chapter 3, verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, El Elyon, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They defied the king's commands, were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. El Elyon. Well, now this is two stories. This guy's really getting it. He's beginning to learn who El Elyon is. The next verse he says, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation, of any language, he's a powerful man on this earth, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut to pieces and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble for, their, for no other God can save in this way. He has now met El Elyon. He has seen the power that this Most High God can work. But he hasn't followed yet. That's the third story. Chapter 4 is the time where he is humbled by God, El Elyon. And I believe he comes to faith. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is still very proud. A proud king, but God intervenes for a third time. One day, Nebuchadnezzar is out on the roof of his palace, and he is strutting around, making statements like, look at this great kingdom that I have built. Look at these magnificent buildings that I have built. I, I, I. I am the head of gold. I am the God these people should worship in my statue. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 31, the words were still on his lips. He's saying how great he is. When a voice from heaven sounds, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you now. You will be driven away from people, and you will live like wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that Elyon, the Most High, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anybody who wants. Nebuchadnezzar, you're only where you are because I put you there. And since you don't see it, I'm going to take you down. And this is exactly what happened. For seven periods of time, perhaps 
each period of time representing a year for seven years, he went into insanity. His hair was long and matted. His nails grew long. And the text says he roamed the pasture lands eating grass like cattle, like a cow. Where's the king today? Oh, he's out in the south pasture. God said, you're only where you are because I put you there. And if you can't see it, I will take you down. You will learn. At the end of that seven-year period of time, starting in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar then gives his testimony. Watch his words carefully. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised El Elyon, the Most High God. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion, his eternal dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Next verse, verse 35. All the peoples of the earth as, as regard, are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of the heavens and the people of the earth. No one could hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The next verse, verse 36. At that same time, my sanity was restored, my honor, my splendor. And finally, verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That final phrase is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Look what I have accomplished. Humble yourself before El Elyon because there is none higher. Don't exalt yourself. If you do, the moment may come where he will have to humble you. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar came to faith in our God for his own salvation. I think on the basis of this passage, we will see him in heaven. Quite a testimony. Everyone must humble themselves before God, even kings. And here's where the humility begins, at salvation. If you think you can be good enough to get yourself into God's heaven, you need to humble yourself before him because you cannot. Your sin separates you from him, but he loves you. And he sent his son to pay the price for your sin. His son was punished for you. We're coming to this in a few minutes. 
with the elements of communion. So those at home, those here, you want to be sure you have your elements with you. Juice, cracker. It is important for each of us to humble ourselves before God and instead of saying, I can be good enough to get myself into heaven because I'll be better than others, surely God will accept me. God is saying, no, you have a sin problem and you must come my way. And his way is to understand Jesus was punished for your sin and if you will believe that, your sin will be forgiven. You must come his way not your way, and this is where the humility begins. And so now in this moment of time, as we move towards communion, it is very, very important for me to actually point out to you the significance of what Jesus did. Jesus himself humbled himself. He was equal with the Father in heaven, second person of the Trinity, God Almighty. And in Philippians chapter 2, the text says, he came to this earth, he made himself, God, second person of the Trinity, he made himself nothing, and he took on human likeness. He became one of his own creations, a human being. He was found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbled himself to provide your salvation. If you don't humble yourself and come his way, you're not going God's way. And this is where humility begins. For each of us today, many of us in this room and online with us, you have come to the point in your spiritual pilgrimage where you have trusted God to forgive your sin based on what Jesus did on that cross. He took your punishment. If you're here and you've never understood that before, I urge you to humble yourself before El Elyon, the greatest of all, the Most High God, and come to him pleading for salvation. He will forgive your sin. He will provide your salvation. Father, I want to thank you for the salvation gift that you have provided us. And now as we come and we turn our attention to these elements of communion, may they be more special than ever. Many of us know what this means, but drive it more deeply into our hearts how Christ humbled himself, taking on the very form of human nature that he had created, and sacrificed himself for our sin. And may each of us, whether we've known this truth before or not today, may we humble ourselves before you and put our trust in you for salvation. Thank you in Jesus' name.